0: Hello and welcome, this is the UC Santa Cruz News Roundup podcast where we talk about the latest news and research from UC Santa Cruz. In this episode, we'll continue going over the news about COVID-19 and how our campus is working to understand it and fight it. And then we've got other news to let you know about too. We are, of course, social distancing. Dan and I are, are recording this podcast through Zoom, which approximately half the world is now using. So, Dan, how uh, how have things been for you this week at home?
1: Well, a couple things, Gwen. Someone keeps leaf blowing every time I get on Zoom. Oh, so God. That's awful. Sorry. And also, I feel like I'm missing... Are you missing going out to eat? I am a lot.
0: I don't yeah. miss going out to eat that much since I don't do it that much in the first place. But I do miss just going out and lingering in, you know, just strolling around, lingering in a a shop, looking at things and not worrying about whether I'm coming down with a horrible disease. So, yeah. I understand. It's like these little
1: things that we miss kind of cumulatively that are just part of our daily routine that didn't seem like big things at the time. But then now that they've been removed from the landscape of our lives, Uh, we miss them. So yeah, yeah. exactly. Hopefully we'll eventually, that's part of what the podcast is talking about is potential exit plans to this intractable crisis.
0: Yeah. Well,
1: we'll get to that in due time. Yeah.
0: Yeah. All right. So listeners forgive any poor audio quality or random sounds in the background like leaf blowers. (laughs) As we get you this podcast, even in this strange and uncertain environment that is seems to be extending way beyond what anyone expected. Ugh. I'm your host, Gwen Jordanay, and I'm an editor for UC Santa Cruz News.
1: And I'm Dan White, and I'm a writer for UC Santa Cruz News.
0: Excellent. So let's dive in. All right, well, first of all, so we have some huge news. We have a new president. Um, yes. Current... Oh, you
1: mean UC. Or yeah, UC. Okay. UC.
0: The current UC president, Janet Napolitano, announced her retirement last year, effective August 1 of this year, which is coming right up. And so the hunt was on for a new UC leader, and we have found one. The University of California Board of Regents appointed Michael V. Drake, MD, as our 21st president, and he'll be overseeing the full UC system of 10 campuses, five medical centers, three nationally affiliated labs, more than 280,000 students and 230,000 faculty and staff. (laughs) Woo, that's a big job. Um, Yeah, Napolitano was UC's first woman president and we'll be making history again because Drake will be UC's first black president.
1: He must be very accomplished if he's a doctor and I'm just wondering, does he have any affiliation with UC?
0: Yeah, he does. So he's had a long career in higher education. Most recently, he was president of the Ohio State University. But before his six years at OSU, his entire academic career has been at UC, including as chancellor of UC Irvine for nine years from 2005 to 14, and as system-wide vice president for health affairs from 2000 to 2005. He, uh, so he did his undergrad at Stanford and his residency MD and fellowship in ophthalmology at UCSF. And then he spent more than two decades on the faculty of the UCSF School of Medicine. As UC Irvine's chancellor, Drake greatly enhanced the campus's reputation as a premier university. UC Irvine rose to join the top 10 public universities in U.S. News and World Report's annual list, and was ranked by Times Higher Education as the number one university in the US under 50 years old. So he did a really great job there. Um, During his tenure at the campus, the four-year graduation rate increased by more than 18%, while undergraduate enrollment and diversity, yeah, significantly increased. In addition, Drake oversaw the establishment of new schools of law and education, as well as programs in public health, nursing and pharmacy. Um, At OSU, his tenure there was marked by record high applications and graduation rates, groundbreaking research and strong donor support. So welcome, Dr. Drake. We are looking forward to see what the future holds with you at the helm here at UC.
1: Yes, we're all looking forward to this. And to be honest, I hadn't even realized just the extent of his accomplishments at uc irvine and elsewhere i think that's really that's that's wonderful looking forward to meeting him if possible i know that there are about 10 zillion of us that would like (laughs) to but hopefully i'll get to you know a quick hello yeah
0: that would be great five
1: seconds yeah
0: i know that's great so very cool so that's some great news Okay so let's get back to our coronavirus updates um, and what UCSC is doing to help solve this global crisis which as I mentioned earlier is dragging on um, in the US with apparently no end in sight. UCSC infectious disease expert A. Marm Kilpatrick has some pretty strong words for us. If people simply wait around for federal state and local governments to save them from the COVID-19 pandemic rather than take every precaution to keep themselves and their communities safe. He says, we will lose the economy and our lives. Oof. Uh, Kilpatrick yeah. is, yeah, is some strong words. Kilpatrick is a um, professor of ecology and evolutionary biology. And he said that he gave us that hard hitting message at the tail end of his, his online craw lecture, which is part of a popular series of science and technology talks made possible by a gift from UC Santa Cruz alumnus, George Croft. It was a Zoom talk and about 1300 people logged in onto it. And Kilpatrick laid out the life or death stakes of human behavior in the face of this epidemic. We can stop the pandemic by making small changes in our behavior, he said. We have to actively choose to do so and do it together. Governments can help a lot, but it's the vigilance of the people, not our leaders, (laughs) who will determine the final outcome, he said.
1: So what exactly did he say we should do?
0: Okay, so he said no close, sustained, unmasked, indoor contact between households. He warned that transmission within households is very difficult to prevent, so we need to stop the virus from spreading between households. He called for people to increase the space between them when they socialized outdoors more is better he said more space the better while wearing masks even if they feel fine to protect those around them if you want to get together safely do it outdoors from a distance and wear masks he said each month we delay infection we discover new treatments and make progress on vaccines
1: so are there Any vaccines that are close?
0: Well, um, three vaccines are now in clinical trials. There are more than 140 vaccines in development. So what can people do to stop the spread? Um, Kilpatrick emphasized the three-step approach of test, trace, and isolate. To stop transmission via contract tracing, people need to get tested at the very first sign of mild symptoms, he said. Testing must be incentivized by making it free and easy as possible. Safe isolation space must be provided for cases and contacts. He also doubled down on the importance of masks to protect communities. When worn properly, they can reduce expelled droplets and microbes by 80%, which is huge, um, while offering some protection to the wearer. He said, communication is the number one priority. We need to make sure everyone understands that the main way the virus spreads is with close, sustained, unmasked indoor contact. We need to make it clear that we all need to do our part to reduce those kind of contacts in our lives. Okay, so that's what he said. Um, It was a great crawl lecture, lots of great information in there, and I, I know a lot of people found it really helpful. I know I did. Um, there's another crawl lecture coming up on a similar topic that listeners might want to know about. Um, it's on COVID-19 diagnostic testing, and it'll be about the UCSC Molecular Diagnostic Lab. And it's Thursday, July 23 at 5.30 p.m., and you can register on the UCSC events calendar. Great. Yeah. Um, lots of great information coming from UCSC and lots of great work.
1: I find it reassuring, Gwen, just because when there's so much misinformation out there, and you know these bizarre political divides over something that should be common sense like masks, I just right. find it reassuring to be in the hands of an expert who is saying, "Here's what I think you should do." Who's not proposing easy solutions, but just laying it out in a way that is easy to follow, but is um, is just really important, really essential. Yeah. So
0: totally. Okay, so next I wanted to talk about a different aspect of our health, and that is supplements. I've never been a huge supplement taker, though of course I've taken them from time to time, haven't for a while. Um, Do you take any herbal supplements, Dan?
1: I used to take these huge garlic smelling supplements that tasted awful, I called them horse pills, Gwen. And I don't know if they did any good, (laughs) but they took my mind off being sick because they were gross and I choked on them, so just merely being sick felt like a vast improvement (laughs) in that respect because at least I didn't have that giant door stopper in my mouth.
0: Yeah, like when you thought you were dying, um, you didn't worry about being sick.
1: Yeah, there's a motivation too. Like if you know you're gonna eat that crushed up garlic every day, I think your Uh. immune system has an extra incentive to to get really (laughs) healthy. Right away. It's like the castor oil of of our grandparents' generation. Like, if you don't get better soon, you're going to drink castor oil. (laughs) So, there. Yeah.
0: So, yeah. So, millions of people take um, dietary supplements, like plant based dietary supplements or herbal medicines, like, you know, (laughs) Echinacea, Golden Seal for colds. But understanding the effects of these natural products on human health has proven to be Extremely challenging C- clinical trials, like the ones they use to evaluate drugs, have pretty much mostly failed to show effectiveness for botanical natural products, unfortunately. Yeah. a new research center- like Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> some do not all um, A new research center led by UC Santa Cruz and funded by the National Institutes of Health will focus on understanding how botanicals work on the molecular and cellular levels to provide a better foundation for clinical trials of these complex natural products. What they're trying to do is put a scientific foundation behind the use of botanical natural products so that people can make informed decisions about what botanicals might be helpful, helpful for them. According to principal investigator John McMillan, Professor of Chemistry and Biochemistry here at UC Santa Cruz. The the UCSC Center will address two major challenges in studying botanicals. One is the variability of botanical materials and the difficulty of determining what their active components are. The other issue relates to how clinical trials are designed.
1: So what does he mean by how clinical trials are designed?
0: Well, so in drug trials, Researchers usually have a clear endpoint. They want to know, for example, if it reduces a particular lipid level or shrinks a tumor. But a lot of people take botan- botanicals for like overall health benefits or to enhance their immune system. So how do you measure that? If we can understand better how these botanicals work, then maybe they can design a clinical trial with a more clear and measurable endpoint. The teams picked out a list of botanicals to start with for their analysis, focusing on several well-known natural products that have been used for anti-inflammatory effects or for enhancing the immune system. The list includes Sweet Annie, also called Sweet Wormwood. Um, those, those are...
1: <laughs> sounds sounds sweet absolutely Sweet Annie sounds way delicious. more sweet than
0: Sweet Wormwood. <laughs> um, Golden Seal, Feverfew, and Ashwagandha, I've never heard of that last one, have have you?
1: Haven't? Sounds like the noise you take when you're chugging it down.
0: (laughs) It it sounds like a yoga pose. McMillan said that whether these natural products have the benefits people take them for is still an open question. They want to know what molecules are present in these botanicals. Is there a robust biological effect on immune cells? And if so, what chemicals are responsible for driving that response? The results of the center's analyses will be made broadly available to the natural products research community. And I can't wait to see if these products actually work the way people swear they do.
1: Because if they taste like mud, they really ought to work, right? They should. <laughs> well, it's just- I think echinacea is the one that's like standing swamp water. That's the one that I have a real oh, problem it with. It
0: is pretty gnar. But, just um, to put it under my tongue? Yeah.
1: And, you know, you feel better when the taste goes away.
0: True. All right, so what's on your news radar, Dan?
1: Aside from dodging herbal health remedies, I've got some good news for fiction fans <laughs> and for people who like adventurous literature that blends disciplines and influences into something that you don't expect that's really new. I'm talking about Sensei and Sensibility. That's the latest book by UC Santa Cruz, Emerita <laughs> Professor of Literature, Karen Yamashita, And I hear it's a dazzling collection of short stories about growing up and living in Japanese America. Mm. And there's a twist. It's what you call a mashup. It's an artful blend of fiction and history. Cool. And the stories are inventive, witty, often surreal, sometimes poignant, exploring the pain and strength of the Japanese-American experience. Uh, Sansai and Sensibility is a retrospective of her short pieces, including her first short story that was published in 1975. Mm. It features an uh, inter generational cast of Japanese American characters and it offers the perspective of what it's like to be a samsai, that's the grandchild of Asian immigrants and Hmm. contemplating what to pass on to the next generation.
0: This sounds great, it sounds like a wonderful collection, Um, but what's the significance of the title? Um, Because it's obviously riffing off sense and sensibility. And how does it relate to the works of Jane Austen?
1: Great questions, and Professor Yamashita had really good answers to your questions, Gwen. Almost (laughs) like she could see them coming in advance. Oh my gosh, amazing. (laughs) Almost eerie. The inspiration for this collection is my sister, Jane. Tell me. she says, she has been a longtime reader of Jane Austen and a jane G- Janeite. A Janeite, oh. Like a Grateful Deadhead version of the people who like mm-hmm. Jane Austen. A very conscientious and active member of the Jane Austen Society. Truth is, I hadn't really read Jane Austen, so I finally did all the novels and wondered why my sister, a Japanese-American sensei, would become a fan of this literature. I still don't really know why she's a fan, but as I read Austin, (laughs) I began to think about my sister and me and growing up as we did in a tightly knit provincial Japanese-American community in LA, and I transferred our experiences into that world. That's really interesting. So in writing the new collection, as well as her previous book, Letters to Memory, which also is widely acclaimed, Yamashita had to revisit the history of the Japanese-American internment through the eyes of her parents and their generation. Now, my sister and I were born after the war and we did not learn of the imprisonment of our parents and their families until we were older, say in junior high, said so too hmm. you know. So even then, the consequences of that history were not clear to us. As I reflected on our childhood in that community and wrote these stories, I began to understand that what had been hidden in memory and shame had always been there percolating that it was the backdrop that formed our social relationships, the quiet antagonisms, and the hurt that festered in our proposed future. For Japanese Americans, the post-war has meant something particular. Perhaps that is what these stories try to feel for. That is lovely, by the way. The author of eight books, Yamashita received a 2011 California Book Award in the fiction category for her novel, *I Hotel, and was a finalist for the National Book Award. And by the way, all you listeners are invited to a virtual event celebrating Karen Yamashita's new book, Sunsei and Sensibility. This is going to take place on August 13th at 7 p.m. Pacific Standard Time and will be presented by Bookshop Santa Cruz and UC Santa Cruz's Humanities Institute, otherwise known as THI. The online event is free and open to the public. For more information and to register for the event, please go to the THI website. So, cool. Yeah.
0: Sounds like a wonderful book.
1: It sure does. And I'm going to add that to my teetering pile of must-read books. <laughs> so I have a, an experiment for all you listeners out there, since I've already directed you online. If you are to go online now and enter the words Family Achievement Guilt into Google, Look what comes up. The first five searches would all contain a reference to the same person. You mm-hmm. see Santa Cruz's own, Rebecca Kovarubias, who is an associate professor of psychology and a very well-known figure in research about students who are first in their family to attend four-year colleges and have to confront some built-in obstacles on the road to getting their degrees. Now, a big part of it has had to do with the historical way that universities have emphasized and really privileged until fairly recently, the white experience over other experiences for such a long period of time. Universities developed a predominantly white American and middle to upper middle class culture, said Megan Robbins, an associate professor of psychology at UC Riverside, who's a friend and former colleague of Covarubius. She points out that Covarubius is doing groundbreaking work in that field, dem- demonstrating with scientific evidence that this imposed culture doesn't fit for everyone.
0: Mm. Yeah, so how would you define this phenomenon called family achievement guilt?
1: Now, Professor Kovarubias had a good explanation, a good answer to your question, Gwen. It's an emotion that can come up when a young student gains access to more educational resources than other family members, the ones who came before, especially when that access to education comes with some sort of price, some sort of sacrifice from the other family members. And that is quite a large emotional burden to bear, Mm -hmm. especially when you take into consideration all these other factors. Let's say you're feeling guilty about something and you're entering a university system that for a long time historically catered to a kind of student who might not look like you, it's different to demographic, giving off an unwelcoming feeling to those students, even if it's not something that's really you know, in your face. It could Mm -hmm. be more subtle. It's the implicit things, the things that make you feel funny in a classroom, but you don't know why, Kovarubias said. So it's almost, it can almost be like a latent sort of feeling. So what can be done to mitigate those emotional difficulties and smooth the pathway for these students to give them a happier, more well-adjusted experience? Now, Kovarubias, a social psychologist, is leading several research projects that foster more equitable educational opportunities for first-generation, low-income, and students of color. But her team is also creating, on a related note, a more precise dictionary vocabulary for describing students' emotional experiences and working with faculty members to alleviate those strong concerns that can come up and cause problems with a student's uh, educational experience and, in the process, addressing inequities in the classroom. Now the goal is to address those spoken and unspoken elements in the classroom that can deter underrepresented students from graduating. For example, it could be something like using community-oriented phrasing, we instead of individualistic words like you, which can feel exclusionary, and campus communications. Her research has shown that revising campus messaging to include we language can help. She stressed the importance of recognizing that some students are just unfamiliar with campus resources that others may take for granted. Now she's had a lot of, aside from her wonderful research, she's she's had this real life experience that informs that research. Mm. She grew up in a low income neighborhood uh, near downtown Phoenix, Arizona, but it did have everything she needed and more to thrive, strong feeling of community, parks, library two blocks away, it was under resourced, but she had what she needed. It wasn't until years later that she appreciated what she had. When she went off to college in Arizona, it was really her first time away. No one her family had moved away for college. She felt guilty, as we mentioned, about leaving everyone behind while she got to experience this opportunity. It was a huge living adjustment too. So as part of her family studies major, she took up an introductory psychology course that revealed a way for her to describe the emotions she'd been experiencing since high school. I learned that research allows us to understand a framework and use tools to name it, study it, and do something about it. Now, she recounts a time shortly after she began teaching at UCSE that really captures the essence of her work. Her team held a workshop for first year, first generation students of color to discuss their transition to college and solicit feedback for staff and faculty. And one student wrote, we just want you to have more compassion. We want you to know who we are, we want you to care about us, and that advice resonated so much with Rubius' own experience that she memorized it. Those words conveyed the most critical way educators can help students succeed. It's simple, she says they're asking for connection hmm. yeah so that's powerful work, which comes from her experience, and shes I've seen some workshops related to this, and it's just really powerful.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: moving on to uh kind of the entertainment and kind of uh shakespearean front i know a lot of you listeners out there we've talked about before this podcast gwen and i were talking about things we missed from our daily (laughs) lives a big one is just those in-person cultural experiences going to museums in person not watching a little app where you're kind of scanning the museum you know (laughs) going to the ballet and actually you know, holding a ticket and finding a seat. A lot of people are binging on free broadcasts of different kinds. And the question is, where do you go to get your Shakespeare? What do you do? Yeah. I don't right. know. UC Santa Cruz has it all figured out. The Humanities Institute and Shakespeare Workshop at UC Santa Cruz are joining forces with Santa Cruz Shakespeare to present their first virtual Shakespeare summer series. I wonder what Shakespeare would think about this. titled Undiscovered Shakespeare, The Words of the Roses. This will be a free public arts and humanities series bringing professional actors, like they're not going to let me go up there, Gwen, and just (laughs) wing it. And scholars together, I can't memorize either. And scholars together with a community for a stage reading and discussion of the works that made Shakespeare famous in the London theater. Cool. Right? So we get to see him on the rise. Running from July 1st to September 2nd, Uh, It'll feature 10 sessions exploring rarely performed plays, looking at them from from the perspective of Shakespeare's career as a mirror for the current times we live in. Professor of literature, Sean Kylan, director of UC Santa Cruz's Shakespeare Workshop, noted that due to the pandemic, they decided to turn a weekend with Shakespeare, this is a summertime uh, partnership with Santa Cruz Shakespeare, Mm -hmm. into the new free series. Although there'll be no productions at Santa Cruz Shakespeare this summer, I've teamed up with the good people there to create a 10-week virtual encounter with Shakespeare's first tetralogy. Is that four or five? It's five parts. Henry v, uh, v, parts one, two, and three, and Richard III. Nice guy, Richard III. What better time to explore the plays that you will probably never see on stage than a summer when you can't see any plays on stage? Well put. <laughs> These were the plays that gave Shakespeare a start in the theater. Kylan pointed out that although uh, the play is about late medieval Civil War in England, these plays by Shakespeare also share concerns that we have now, believe it or not.
0: Yeah, Uh, this is so cool to learn about. So why don't you tell me a little bit about the ways that these old plays are still relevant to 21st century audiences?
1: Among other things, these plays demonstrate the power that women display at critical moments at these times of historical crisis, right? Mm. They suggest that the rhetoric one nation uses to demonize another nation will eventually turn inward and divide that nation against itself. Uh, And the play gives a voice to the suffering of the poor and the oppressed. (laughs) So um, it's funny, I think that people talk about the negative capability of the Shakespeare play where age after age, uh, it'll be adapted to the meaning of that age, which is kind of one of the reasons why people still love Shakespeare is because he's adaptable. Mm -hmm. Undiscovered Shakespeare will meet once a week for about 90 minutes to two hours beginning at 6.30 p.m. Each meeting starts with a dramatic reading of a section of the play at hand by professional actors. After a brief intermission, there will be a discussion. And the series uh, has already kicked off Wednesday, July 1st. That's come and gone. Mm-hmm. But as I said, it's going to go into September. Uh, Kyla noted that at last count, uh, over 400 people had already signed up, which is great. Right. Excellent. And um, note, all sessions, of the virtual summer series, Undiscovered Shakespeare, The Words of the Roses, are free to the public. And participants are not obligated to attend all of them. I mean, I might scold you if you don't, but you're not gonna get a bad grade or anything. <laughs> For a complete schedule and register, please visit the Humanities Institute's website.
0: Yeah. Well, excellent. We can yeah. brush up on our Shakespeare while we are sitting around our house because we can't leave it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's a great idea. And I hope a lot of people do that. Um, very, very cool.
1: It's nice that these, these there are these new traditions, Gwen. That are starting because have you noticed yeah. there are certain COVID traditions like people are howling at eight. if They've stopped, they uh-huh. stopped howling, and they've been like Zoom cocktail hours. When's the last time you've done a Zoom cocktail? Oh hour? man, like, yeah. That's that's when I think this was gonna end. Sorry, but now we've got, <laughs> <laughs> but now we've got Shakespeare in your house. Shakespeare in your pajamas.
0: Yeah, well, that makes it very comfortable. To, uh, they should have
1: just called it Shakespeare in your PJs, the but Bard, this, the yeah. Bard, or the Bard should... in your boxers. That's what they should call it.
0: <laughs> um, maybe not. Anyway, <laughs> all right. Well, with that, um, that is it for this time. Um, More than so, enough. You can, Boy. you can, yeah, you can uh, go. Go check out the lineup of the Undiscovered Shakespeare series and get some culture in your life. Get some
1: culture, people.
0: Okay. Well, that's it for this time. Good, as always, to have you with us. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Slap on your mask, slugs. And uh, we'll catch you up with all the latest news next
1: time. See y'all soon. All right. Bye.